Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Hey pals, welcome back to another episode of the Water Women Podcast. I am so glad that you came back to listen to today's episode, or if this is your first episode, welcome. Thank you for joining us. As usual, I say this every episode, and I know it probably gets old listening, but I am so excited for today's guest. And the truth is, I'm excited for every single guest I have on here because I just love talking to these water women and learning about them and learning what makes them water women and sharing all of our experiences. But I'm so excited about today's guest. Um, she is incredibly cool. Not only is she just a cool person in general, but she is a pioneer in manta ray research. She discovered a new species of manta ray. She did the first ever PhD on manta rays. We dive into a lot of different things today, and I am so excited to share it with you all. So joining me today is the the absolute queen of mantas, Andrea Marshall. And let's jump in and talk all about how she found a new species of manta ray, did her first PhD, created a marine megafauna foundation. Like, this woman really does it all. Andrea, you are truly amazing, and I, I'm so excited to share this episode, and I hope every single one of you listens to this, takes something from it, because I was so inspired by the end of this that I was like, I'm going to go do this, I'm going to go do this, I'm going to go do this, and just like, I hope she inspires you guys as much as she inspired me. So I am so psyched to have today's guest on the podcast. She is incredibly cool. And not only was she the first person to complete a PhD on manta rays, but also discovered a completely new species of manta ray in 2008. So meaning she's 100% the queen of mantas. So Dr. Andrea Marshall, I'm so excited to have you on today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you very much. It's awesome to be able to connect with people even during COVID, even all the way over in Africa. So it's a pleasure to be here. It's so cool that we are like, I think, six hours apart, seven hours apart, so far apart, and yet still got time to do this and can connect like this and get to talk to each other. So do you want to start out and tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do, kind of an introduction to yourself, if you will? Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm a marine biologist, but I actually feel like when I tell people what I do, I actually like to tell people I'm a conservation biologist because I feel like that's a little bit more appropriate to actually what I do. I mean, it's not like I study just coral all day or things (laughs) like that. Um, Very specifically, I started an organization called the Marine Megafauna Foundation. And that organization, um, our mission is to save ocean giants from extinction. So we focus on sort of the largest, most charismatic, iconic animals in the ocean. um, The ones that are actually also usually endangered or at least threatened with extinction. Um, And we do a lot of research on them, but the research that we do is really targeted in trying to figure out how to protect or manage them better around the world, especially in their most critical habitats. Wow, that is so cool. How did you know that you wanted to go into marine science (laughs) and whatnot? Like, where did that come from? Did you grow up near the ocean or did you find it later on in life? Yeah, I've had people ask me this before, and it, and it is really a mystery to me. Um, my mom, who can't even hardly swim, um, you know, she, she definitely isn't an animal person. She's not really an outdoor person. It's not like I got it from my family. But she said ever since I was about five years old, if anyone asked me what I want to be, and I have a daughter who's five now. So it's kind of strange to imagine, you know, her, you know, with such conviction telling me, I want to be a shark biologist to anyone. Anyone that asked me, that's what I wanted to be. And my mom said, I never altered. I never changed. I never, you know, wanted to be a ballerina one day and a doctor the next day. It was, I always want to study sharks. Um, and that, yeah, so that, that kind of was always my passion. Um, and so I kind of started diving when I was 11. Uh, I think I put my first scuba tank on. I got certified on my 12th birthday. That's what I asked for for my, for my birthday. Um, and, and then it was, you know, I, I became an underwater photographer at 15. I became a professional underwater photographer working for a film crew shortly after that. Um, put myself through school uh, doing underwater photography and that kind of stuff. Became a marine biologist. And I just, that's, I mean, it's just always what I wanted to be. So I always had a very specific um, idea of what I wanted my life to look like. 
that is so cool that you started like you knew from a young age not at all that is fascinating that you like from a young age were like yeah this is this is it and then like scuba diving at 11 and 12 and then starting underwater photography like there was really never a question for you of this is it this I'm going to be underwater for the rest of my life that's true really truly and and you know in some ways it's limiting because I know a lot of people try different things but it was always kind of comforting for me because I knew what I wanted to be and and so I could really focus um, when I was especially when I was younger at at trying to get all the skills that I thought that I would need to do this job um, and I'm glad because I think what makes me a good scientific diver these days um, and why people are like, wow, you're really great underwater is because I was diving when I was 11, you know, so I didn't have to learn how to dive to be a scientist. I was already a diver and I didn't yeah. have to learn underwater photography to help with my research because I was an underwater photographer and those kinds of things. So, yeah, I feel, I feel like sometimes knowing what you want to be really early on can be really helpful can definitely be beneficial so you have those skills ready to go like in your back pocket and if you had decided to do something else you still would have had those for fun and for like your enjoyment kind of thing yeah definitely so tell us about your phd because you did your undergrad you became a marine biologist and then decided to go on do like your master's phd and did it on manta rays so what kind of attracted you to manta rays and you said like oh i want to study these well, it's kind of an interesting story because I just told you now that I was always obsessed with sharks and yeah. I was always um, and I did my undergrad in the U.S. I did uh, kind of postgraduate stuff um, in Australia but I always dreamt of being like I don't know like Jane Goodall or or Diane Fossey or Sylvia Earle or someone I wanted adventure I wanted to live in the middle of nowhere I really wanted to like connect with like animals in the middle of nowhere kind of thing. And, and even Australia felt too like a little America to me. So I thought like, where can I go that's super wild? And I was like, Africa. <laughs> so I moved there and I wanted to start working on sharks. And obviously I started with like a great white shark idea um, and kind of was looking at a few different shark species. But the coolest thing about even though you know what you want to be, sometimes life throws you a curveball or sometimes something happens that changes your direction a little bit, but it also, it kind of, it kind of fit for me. So I, I started volunteering when I was in Africa for the IUCN. So the IUCN is the group that kind of um, is in charge of listing species as endangered or when you hear a, a species is critically endangered or endangered on the red list, it's the IUCN uh, experts around the world that are designating these animals as, as endangered um, using all the science. So I signed up to be a volunteer for that quite early on and I started doing assessments. And one of the assessments that they slid across, across my desk was for manta rays. And I thought, how cool, I love manta rays. You know, I mean, they're not sharks, but I love them. And um, I, you know, I'd seen them a lot as a diver. And what happened that week was as I was making the assessments on the mantas, I realized that no one knew anything about them. And I thought that was the weirdest thing because they're such a beautiful animal. They're one of the biggest fish in our oceans. They're so, they're like the panda of the ocean. I mean, who doesn't love a manta ray? And we had no information on them. And so I, at the end of the week, I was unable to even make an assessment. I had to list them as data deficient. And I thought to myself, it, it, it really bothered me. It bothered me that we know so little about the ocean. I was really, I was really perturbed by that. And as I was traveling around Africa exploring, and because I'm very much like an explorer kind of diver, um, I found this huge population of mantas in Mozambique that had just opened up from this huge civil war. And it was rough and there was nothing there. And it was just, it was, it was so remote and so hostile, but there was these incredible mantas and whale sharks living off the coastline. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I could be the first person that studies them. And maybe I could contribute so some science so that the next time we do a red list that we don't have to list it as data deficient. You know, maybe I'll be able to find out enough information so that we can assess their conservation status and we can give them a fighting chance. And I thought, well, you know, I really wanted to study sharks, but I felt like all of a sudden this opportunity had presented itself and I jumped at it. And to tell you the truth, about six months into studying them, I've never thought about going back. I mean, I study sharks now still, but, um, but I mean, mantas are my ultimate passion now because um, they're just so unbelievably interesting. That is so cool that it was just kind of like a happenstance that you got the mantas to study for this. And you it just really led you to where you are now. Like it really kind of opened the door for you. 
So was your PhD looking at like their numbers or like what were you studying for their PhD? Yeah, so uh, like I said, I, I just felt like I wanted to contribute something. And certainly at the time, I wasn't like trying to do the first PhD on mantis or anything like that. No. But as I said, there wasn't really any formal work being done on them. And, and I just thought, well, what can I do? You know, can I, can I, you know, how do I go about studying them? If no one, if no one's really doing anything, you don't even have any other studies to kind of learn from or you have nothing to go on. Um, so I read up about Ray research and, you know, things like that. And then I just decided, well, let's just go out and, and observe them and see more about them. And so I was recording everything. I, I kind of learned very quickly that I could identify in between the mantis because they have these natural spot patterns on their bellies that are unique. So you can tell every single individual apart. And that was new to me because you can't really do that with sharks or not really so much, most sharks mm -hmm. anyway. Um, and so I thought, cool, I can tell them apart. So I started naming them, you know, and I started watching them. I, you know, started watching them have, you know, you know, have their pregnancies. I watched them mating, I'd watched them cleaning. And I just started making all kinds of observations and really just generally studying their ecology. And then, as you mentioned, um, maybe about a year into to studying them, I kind of noticed that every time I saw a manta, it either looked really like, like a certain, it had a certain look or it looked completely like another look. So it was almost like every time I saw a manta, it either looked like A or it looked like B. And I remember going back and talking to some professors and, and they, they didn't even want me to do a PhD out in Africa. They told me it was too dangerous. They told me I was gonna die. They told me I didn't have enough money. Um, and I kind of self-financed the first 18 months or so of my studies wow. just myself. I sold my apartment and my car and I, I self-financed everything. But I went to my professor and I said, listen, man, I think there might be two different species of mantis. <laughs> and of course, I just got completely laughed out of his office and everyone else's office that I went into to say that. But I was convinced that, you know, that there must be. And everyone was like, well, how, how would people have missed that? You know, you're like 23. I mean, how would the world have missed that there's two different species of mantis? Because, you know, it's just like with whale sharks, there's just this one circumphobal like, um, species. Yeah. And I said, no, I really, I really think there are two. And so I kind of, that, that um, what I like to tell people when I like give lectures and stuff is like, you have to listen to that voice inside. And that kind of obstinate girl was like, you know, I don't care if all these old guys think I'm wrong. I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow, you know, my, my suspicion. And sure enough, while it took several years, but I was ultimately able to prove um, taxonomically and genetically um, that there were two different species. And <laughs> to tell you the truth, um, I'm actually working on a description of a third species, like literally right now, I just got on with you, but I just put away some, some of the manuscript that I'm working on for a third one. So yeah, you know, you should never believe what people, what people say. You always have to just follow what you know to be true inside. Okay, that is incredibly cool that you like were able to identify not one, but two like new separate species, because I feel like I even thought like, oh, manta rays, there's just it's a, it's a manta ray, like there's not manta ray A, manta ray B, but it's really cool to know that there's so many, like could be so many different species of them and we just don't know yet. And that's so cool that you're doing that work. That must've been like an exhilarating feeling to be like, you know what, you told me that I was gonna be wrong, but I wasn't. I love proving, proving people wrong, but also <laughs> for me, it was a really good lesson. And I used to be frustrated sometimes very OCD. I don't know if you see my office behind you, but I'm a very clean and organized kind of very, um, you know, that goes in that box, that goes in that box kind of person. Um, and maybe in some ways during my life it was debilitating. I mean, my husband who's in the house right now would tell you that, you know, he finds it debilitating because I need everything to go in, in specific compartments all the time. But I felt like the first time with this new species thing, it was like my superpower because you know, I see things very, very visually, very black and white, you know, very compartmentalized everything. And, you know, for me, it was like all of a sudden this trait of mine I could use in science and that it was like a benefit to me. Um, and so it was like that first time where I was like, wow, you know, I really need to listen to myself. I need to use kind of um, some of these traits as superpowers uh, to, to try and tackle the science that I'm doing. And yeah, it was a very liberating time for me to, to, to kind of forge my own way, even though other people were telling me no. Um, and, and yeah, and kind of do like a lot of first, first, uh, first of its kind science. That is so inspiring. I love that. 
where in this story did the marine megafauna foundation come from because that's a whole other thing that you've like you've done so many cool things i can't even handle it i like want to be you when i grow up at this point you could i mean why not i tell people all the time like you're only limited by your own limitations like so who knows um and i feel like it's very cool what you're doing already you know it takes a lot to to kind of just do these kinds of things that you're passionate about so congratulations to you as well Thank you. Um, and MMF is a really good example, again, of me just um, not, um, not wanting to go the normal path, I suppose. And I kind of really, the reason I take interviews like this or the reason I do a lot of media is to encourage other people to take that, that path less traveled because it usually ends up somewhere good. Um, and for me, after I finished my PhD, it was kind of like, okay, well, what do you do now? Well, everyone told me, well, either you, you become an academic at a university and go the professor tenure route, or you go work for one of the big NGOs. Mm -hmm. And I thought about both of those avenues and I thought well, they didn't sit well with me. You know, the big NGOs that are out there and no offense. I, I mean, I think everyone that does conservation is, is it's good. Yeah. Um, but you know, I never saw them in the field. I never saw them out doing the work. I never saw them engaging with the communities. I never saw them tackling the, the problems on the ground. And I thought to myself, like, I want to be a researcher that's in the field. Like, I want to make impact by being present. And my, my best friend at the time, um, who was also kind of graduated at the same time as me and, and kind of also specialized in sharks and rays, both of us felt the same way. And both of us had, had he had come over to Mozambique on, on my, um, recommendation to kind of look at some of the whale sharks that were there and we just sat together and we thought we really don't want to work for one of these NGOs where we spend all of our time in the office and not out in the field and with the people on the ground well, why don't we start our own NGO and he's like don't be ridiculous they say that's impossible it's like a restaurant you know everyone failed you know and and I said yeah but if we don't like what we see out there why don't we create something that we believe in and that's where that's MMF really came great. from we sat down and we thought well, if we were going to go, if we were going to go and work for our dream NGO, what would that dream NGO look like? And then we created our dream NGO. And luckily it didn't fail. And luckily, I don't know, 10, 12 years later, you know, we've gone global and we have lots of people working for us and, and projects all around the world now. And, and we couldn't be happier. That is so amazing that you guys were just kind of what I'm gathering from this is like you like things in boxes but you don't like being put in a box and the second someone kind of tells you no you're like well we'll see about that and I love that that's very well very well put but that's right I think it's amazing that you were like the idea you had there it's like okay well like and uh, like NGOs but like I don't like what they're doing so I'm gonna create one and just made it like tailored it almost to you where it's like, I want to be in the field, I want to be in the water, I want to be doing research, and you can do that. Hmm. And, I, and I tell my story to inspire others to do that, because I'm not saying everyone should run out and, and start their own NGO, but just in life, I think one has to really sit down and, and have a conversation with yourself and say, what do I want from this life of mine? You know, and what are my and you know what do I want to achieve and then how can I make my dreams a reality and I think that's a conversation that a lot of people don't have with themselves or a lot of people aren't honest with themselves they kind of try and um, they kind of live for others or they kind of I think do what everyone else does because it's it's the norm and I think more people should be really honest with themselves and really kind of figure out what it is that they want to do on this planet absolutely and going off of that one word that I don't hear like nearly enough is like tenacity to have the tenacity to go out and do things that you want to do and be tenacious in it. And like, I feel like you are a perfect example of that. And I have shared this story before on the podcast. I'm starting my master's or like um, post-secondary school here soon. And how I got it is like, I never had the best grades in school. I, um, knew I wanted to research whales, but I had a prof that told me like, no way, like that's so competitive. And I was like, okay, awesome, great. Uh, okay, cool, I'm still gonna do it. And I started like Googling just like whale internships, like different places. And I found one in Australia and I sent the like um, president an email. I was like, hi, here's why you should take me on as an intern for like a month or two. And he emailed me back and was like, no, we're not looking for an intern. And I was like, okay, here's why I'd be a great one. Here's what I would do. Here are my ideas. And he was like, okay, come down for two months. And now I'm going to do my master's with him just because I was like, no, 
I'm doing this. You want me here. And here we are. And I'll tell you a secret. A lot of the people that work for me, same story. Um, because this. while academic and things like that um, have value, I mean, everybody, I mean, if you're going to be a scientist, being smart is important, but that is such a small part of the bigger picture of things. And the people that make it and the people that make the best conservationists or the people that make the best biologists or whatever out there are people who have that, you called it, uh, you know, you used talking about the word tenacious. And I, I grew up uh, doing martial arts and um, Taekwondo specifically. And we always had like a tenant of indomitable spirit. And for me, that's what it is. That kind of unspoken kind of, I just won't accept no, you know, I'll, you know, bust through any wall to get to where I want to get. That is so much more valuable as a skill than, I mean, oh, you can learn you can learn the academic stuff along the oh, way, yeah. but to have that work ethic or to have that belief in oneself and that unwilling to say no, that's the most important quality. And so I commend you for that. And I hope everyone else out there is, is listening and kind of takes our advice and, and kind of employs that same sort of strategy in their life. It really is. It can be difficult sometimes to do it because you're like, like hearing no can tear you down a little bit. You're like, oh, they don't like, maybe I'm not good enough, but then you just have to take that and be like, no, I am. I know I am. I'm, I'm fantastic. Why wouldn't they want to work with me? And then just go off of that. Yep. And I feel like it's a trait that not enough people utilize. Yep. Like totally it needs to be more, more often used. Yeah. And so, celebrated in the people that are like that. That's why I always give the people that are like that a chance. A lot of people say, oh, that guy's really pushy or that girl is, you know, almost like, you know, and I just said, no, you know, I love that trait in people. I feel like the people, my husband was like that to give you an example. He, he kept writing me and telling me he wanted to work for me and wouldn't shut up. And I was like bordering on stalker kind of thing, but he knew what he wanted and uh, he didn't have the skill set, And that's what I looked for initially. And I tell you now, not just because he's my husband, he's the most valuable person on my team um, because he just thinks outside of the box and he never says, you know, takes no for an answer. So you know, I think those types of people are always the people that make the biggest impact. Yeah, the people that want it and are willing to go the extra mile. And I've heard this advice that if you're interested in like working somewhere or working with someone to not constantly, but be like sending them emails and checking in often because your name's going to always be at the top of their like inbox or it's going to be on their mind. If an opportunity comes up, they'll be like, oh, well, this person's been reaching out a lot. They're very interested and it's going to open up a lot of doors for you. You mentioned it uh, coming across as like bossy or pushy. And I feel like that opens up a whole can of worms almost of like when men do it, it comes off across as leadership. And when women do it, it's pushy and bossy. And I like that just, you can't be afraid of those labels. No, hundred percent. And I mean, that's a whole nother thing you can get into is just, you know, the, the stereotypes and, and, and whatnot. And, um, you know, I noticed because the other co-founder of MMF is a, is a guy, um, I've noticed that every step of the way in that he'll get commended and lauded for, for certain things. And, and, you know, if, if I do very similar things to him, it comes across to, to, to people as completely different, bossy, pushy, bitchy, all of those things. Um, mm. Instead of just a, a power, a powerful woman who's ambitious or, you know, someone that knows what she wants and that, you know, that has a very specific, you know, work ethic or whatever it is. Um, it's usually celebrated in a man and not so much as a woman. And you can't let that bother you. You just have to, like I said, be true to yourself um, and not really focus on the labels or, or things like that. You just don't let it get to you. Oh, for sure. I think one thing that's really stood out to me is in my undergrad, we were talking one day about like what we wanted to do. And I had a male colleague who was like oh I think like marine mammals are really cool and I want to research marine mammals and someone was like oh that's a fantastic idea like what do you want to study and was like asking him all these questions and later on I was talking I was like well I really want to research humpback whales and like this specifically and they were like that's a little ambitious don't you think and I was like wasn't ambitious for him two minutes ago but it is for me what do you mean what's going on here and what's wrong with being ambitious exactly all the time that's ambitious Great. I mean, I see that as a compliment. I am. Um, and, you know, I go after what I want and, you know, and more often than not, I, I, I accomplish those things. And even if I don't, I tried. 
Yeah, you, know, you so learn something from it. Mission. Exactly. I love that. And I love that that ambition led you to MMF because I think it's such an amazing organization. And what, like, do you guys look at all marine megafauna? Like, what are you looking at anything specifically like manta rays and whale sharks, obviously, but like anything else? Yeah, I mean, so obviously when you start an organization, it, it behooves you to um, start smaller, focus on things, do those things well. I think that's one of the, the definitely one of those principal founding kind of important things about MMF that we wanted is that we didn't want to get too big for ourselves too quickly. We didn't want to mm -hmm. over, um, you know, we didn't want to kind of, you know what I'm saying? We didn't want to do too much so that, that, that we didn't do things well. So for the first many, many years, we very much focused on, on mantis and whale sharks. And, and I feel have become, you know, some of the global leaders on, on that research. Um, and eventually we were in a position to start branching out, you know, so we started doing a little bit of turtle research here in Mozambique. Um, and then we um, started dabbling in things like marlin research um, that we were doing now here off the Eastern coast of Africa. Um, we started working on other threatened species of sharks and rays. So, um, we have a program, for instance, on, on bull sharks. We have a program on wedge fish, which are, have just oh, been declared yeah. as the most endangered fish group in the world. Um, we work on leopard sharks, also endangered, or either they're called leopard or zebra sharks, depending on where you are. Um, we also like to study things that other people don't study or that have never been studied before. So things like the small-eyed stingray we study here in Mozambique. It's um, one of the world's largest marine stingrays, never been studied anywhere else. I don't even think anyone has the opportunity to study it. And we're sitting on a pretty healthy population here. So we're studying this animal for the very first time you know, ever. So we like to mix it up we, you know, between studying things that are, are that they're data deficient and we need more research on them and studying things that we know to be threatened or endangered and, and what can we do specifically for those species to, to help them. We, we focus a lot on sharks and rays and that's because both Shaman and I have a strong background in sharks and rays, but we are starting to study other species as well. So like I pointed out, we study some turtles, we studied, we studied marlin before, we're starting to study like um, things like potato grouper and brindle bass, stuff like that. Um, so, you know, we, we're branching out as, as we go along, but um, we'll always keep, uh, you know, it's, I'll always have a soft spot in my heart for sharks and rays. I love that. I love that it's kind of like a jacks of jack of all trades sort of group because it really it's covered like I like that you started a small and really got yourself like established and have since grown to be doing research on all different sorts of things because that is so needed and so exciting. Yeah and and I think like you know I mean it's nice to try different things and work on different things but I think it's important to try and keep the focus on on making sure that your science is impactful. And if you work on too many things, then you're probably not having a, a tremendous impact on, on, on anything. So you have to really, you know, you can branch out a little bit, but you always have to like keep a theme or you always, for us too, we don't necessarily work everywhere. We have a couple of focal regions around the world. So we try and keep our focus on those regions so that we can become very expert in those places and 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 have a, have long-term conservation benefit in those in those locations rather than you know, kind of spreading ourselves too thin, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. talk about is your ray of hope research ex expeditions because I was reading a little bit about them before we started chatting and I think they're so cool can you tell us a little bit about them yeah I mean that was again another example of just um something falling into my lap if you will and it was you know as I was doing this research especially on mantas because now there's quite a few people that study mantas but at the time there wasn't and you know that I started and and I think a lot of people were fascinated by the manta research. Um, I was in a couple of major documentaries pretty early on, like the, the BBC Magic Mean that you mentioned um, earlier. Um, and, and I think once that visibility got out there, that there was like a girl doing research on mantas, I just got thousands and thousands of emails from people all around the world that said like, can I come out with you? Can I help you? Can I volunteer with you? Can I, 
I really want to come out and experience stuff. And, and obviously it's overwhelming. I was young at the time. I, you know, was in my mid to late twenties. I, I live in a hut in Africa, I mean, not now, <laughs> but I, for many, 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 many years, I lived in a grass hut, you know, and I was like, well, I can't take you. You can't come to my hut. You know, like I, and you know, and it was, I felt bad turning people away. Like yourself very enthusiastic people who have full of passion people that you know their hearts in the right place and they just want to get out there in the field and see things and I felt horrible turning them away and as the years rolled by um, something else happened is that I realized that if I was going to do global research on manta rays that I needed to kind of harness this power of of uh, like the masses in order to do my research better and I was definitely one of the I think I think one of the first proponents of like citizen science in like marine megafauna research, trying to figure out how to get divers around the world to help contribute things. And, um, and you know, so there's a bunch of us out there that it started with these global databases and started trying to get more people contributing, you know, photos or data globally so that we could, you know, accelerate our programs and, and accomplish more. And as I started to do that, I started to realize like all of these people I'm turning away, you know, I can, let's use these people. Let's figure out how to get them involved. And in order to kind of help train people and inspire people, I realized that I should be running trips and I should be inviting people to learn how to, how to help scientists and get involved yeah. and get passionate and then go out there and spread that message. And so I started to run these ramp up expeditions where people could join us in the field. All these people would join and basically it would help our research because they would pay for these boats to go out on these expeditions to do our work. So it was helping to finance the research, but at the same time, it was helping us to connect with the public, getting them excited and involved in the research, involved in citizen science so that we can do our job better as scientists. So it all kind of like came together at the same time, but going on those trips really has helped me connect with the public. And it's like, I love to take people out to see their first mantas. You know, I love to hear them squeal through their snorkel <laughs> for the first time. There's nothing better than that first, you know what I mean? It's great. Um, and, you know, and being able to change someone's life, you know, because you go on these trips and you have, I mean, you, you, you are obviously a whale person, but you have these moments of connection with these huge animals, Give, you know, be it a whale or a manta ray or a, an, a real whale, or a whale shark or what it doesn't matter what it is you know they have these moments of connection and it can fundamentally change people you know and then it's like you have them for life you have their attention for life and they're gonna do whatever they can to contribute to conservation for these animals forever oh yeah it really that first breath underwater or like your first time seeing this huge animal or just this like seeing something underwater that you have never seen before it can be life-changing like it's like a connection and you're just like cool I'm in it for the long haul now I'm ready to do whatever I need to do to help these guys absolutely and on our trips sometimes people go and they have a life-changing moment and they leave but a lot of the times people write me and say I, I quit my job I went back to school or I'm now volunteering for another NGO permanently in my spare time now or they come and join our board or they become a volunteer for us for life, or they start collecting citizen science and are one of our biggest contributors. And so many people have been affected by this stuff that for me, a lot of people say, how do you find the time to like run trips in between all of your research and running a you know, big organization? And I said, well, I see it as something, I see it as also something that's ticking the box. Like these types of expeditions for me are really, really valuable. It's not that I have to do them or I take the time out because I, you know, I really enjoy them and I really, feel like you know you find the coolest people on these expeditions that can oh, yeah. you know kind of you, you kind of bring all these new people into your tribe um and like you said a lot of them commit for life after that I feel like after talking to you for a little while too I definitely feel like you're not the kind of person who can sit in an office all day and just crank at work and when it's something important to you you're like hey no I gotta be out in it and not just reading about it like you have to be involved <laughs> which I love no, for sure. I'm a field biologist, like for sure. I probably can't see out my window because it's black right now. It's dark, but I literally overlook like this, the Basrucho Seascape Archipelago out here. And I can like walk onto my research boat from my lawn and go straight out to see my mantis. So I, there's no containing me. I come back into the office to do some stuff, but I have to be out in the field all the time, right? I die. 
that is ideal like to just like wake up be able to walk across your lawn and be out on the water doing your research that's like my dream I can't wait yeah, it took a while for me to negotiate this position but I, <laughs> I love it so on these expeditions what kind of data are you guys collecting about the mantas like are you doing uh photographic stuff or like notes like what are you collecting every expedition is different and I think that's what keeps people coming back so I have a lot of repeat customers people that have been all over the world with me to different places and normally the expeditions are to places where we have long-term research um you know so a lot of people have been out with us before in Ecuador we were studying the Ecuadorian mantas off the coast of, of, of Ecuador for a very long time and you know so that was just about um going out and, and a lot of times just collecting um, the first information on a population. So you're trying to look at the size of the populations. You have to photograph all the individuals, start putting them in databases, look at these long-term trends, things like that. And then in other places, it's other things. So for instance, we also do work in, um, in the Andaman Sea. So Myanmar, Thailand kind of area, um, that sort of region. And in that area, there's a very small mantis season every year. It's very short. And so we can't do a lot of research there. The best research that we can do is like, tagging and telemetry to find out what the animals do when they're away from that place that they only come to for a few months a year. And so, you know, on those expeditions, people will go out with us, we'll find mantas, we'll tag them with satellite tags and then kind of look to see where they go. Um, other places like Indonesia where we do work, um, I just had a whole PhD student uh, who did a, um, a thesis um, on uh, the effects of microplastics on mantas. And so a lot of the times when people would come out with us, we were collecting um, water samples, trying to figure, you know, trying to calculate how much plastics the mantas were ingesting, had volunteers grabbing manta poo uh, so that we could go through the manta poo to look at, you know, to see for the first time if mantas were ingesting plastics. Um, you know, I mean, it's a, you know, we've had other times where you go out to these remote places to go to manta fisheries. And so people who are on, on vacation are, you know, knee deep in manta guts, you know, because we're trying to do taxonomy or describe a new species, or we're trying to count the number of mantas that are dying in a fishery so that we can make some conservation impact there. You know, I mean, it, it's all over the place, you know, and, and that's what I think the people that come out with us like is that they know that it's not a cookie cutter thing. You know, we're, we're always trying to achieve something. We're always trying to do something new or different. Um, and they feel like they're really contributing to something that's real. Yeah, that is so cool that you collect so many different kinds of data and that you're doing so many different things, not so many different things, but like there's so many aspects that you're looking at of this data and kind of how it helps with the bigger picture of them. Like you mentioned like when you're identifying the new mantis species, you have to look at the taxonomic and genomic kind of differences between them. So how are you doing that? How can you kind of tell like, this is the Meta, the, the original Manta, and this is the new one. Well, as I said before, I think when I was talking about first studying them, it was me. And I was, I'm going to put out there that I was very fortunate because in terms of the Mantas anyway, most of the places around the world that they live, they are like what we call allopatric um, in that one species lives in one, one place and another species lives in another place. There's very few places where we would refer to them as sympatric, meaning they live together. And so Mozambique is one of those really rare locations where both species are utilizing the same kind of habitats at the same time. So I had the opportunity to like look one direction and then look the other direction and be like, I don't know, I don't think those things are the same. Um, I, the other species that we're um, describing now isn't like that. So it, it doesn't always happen that, you know, you can look, you know, two different directions and see two different species at once. Um, but at least that first time it, it worked like that for me where I was just looking at these two ones and it didn't look the same. So there were a lot of visual differences um, that I think initially got my head thinking like, wow, those don't look the same. They're, they're, they're different sizes as well. Obviously I ended up naming one the giant manta because surprise, surprise, it's bigger. <laughs> um, and so I kind of was like, oh, that one's always bigger and it always looks like that. And that one's smaller and it looks like that. And so it started there, but obviously it doesn't end there because in order to describe a species, you have to kind of look at all of the diagnostic differences. And, and usually that's not just coloration. Usually there'll be other things. So call it like the, the taxonomic work can, can involve things like morphological differences as in like they have sizes or shape differences or proportion differences. 
or it could be like meristic differences, we call it in science, where like the shape of their teeth are different or the skin looks different or, you know, one of them has a spine as is the case with the giant manta and one of them doesn't as the case with the reef manta. So there was a lot of differences between the different species, but I slowly had to tease out those differences. And then of course we had to validate, verify it with, um, with genetics as well. And so for us, it was about going around the world, collecting tissue samples from the two different types around and then being able to, you know, compare and contrast those and, and be able to show that, that in fact, they, they had speciated and were different. That is absolutely wild that you were able to do that and had to, or got the chance to take the samples, look at the samples and see like that process of determining two different species. That sounds so interesting and so cool. Yeah, it was cool. I, I definitely relish the opportunity because I'm not a taxonomist by, by trade or by, you know, in my education at all. And I remember when I proposed the idea that I thought it was two and then they were like, well, yeah, do you even know how to go about that? I'm like, no, but I'm going to learn. Um, and then got the shock of my life because actually taxonomy is a little bit more complicated than I would have thought. Um, even just the nomenclature, even just the naming of mantas and the stuff that you have to do in order to figure out like, oh man, it's complicated. Um, but I, I liked it. I liked that. That's the cool thing about studying an animal that, that no one's ever studied. And we're studying other animals now that no one's ever studied is you kind of get to like try your hand at all kinds of different things, right? You know, we've dabbled in genetics, we've dabbled in feeding ecology and reproductive ecology and behavioral stuff and anthropogenic, you know, issues and, you know, taxonomy. And it's like, so I feel like I've got the best of it all. I've got to try, I've got to try my hand at it all, um, which is nice. Yeah, it's kind of giving you an opportunity to really get a, that big picture of them and like see how different things are affecting them and really learn more about them, which is so cool. So do you have any projects coming up that you're really excited about within uh, MMF that you can tell us about? Um, I think I'm getting to the stage of my career where um, I am, I'm farming off like more like a uh, more like ecology projects to like my students or some of our senior scientists. Like if, you know, I mean, while I still find a lot of that very fascinating and I like being involved still, you know, as a supervisor or as a, you know, we should, you know, I do the projects with some of these senior scientists sometimes. I think my biggest um, next chapter anyway of my life is, is kind of tackling the, now that we know that mantas are in trouble, like I don't know if you if you if you saw it, um, but um, just a couple weeks ago, anyway, um, a few weeks ago, um, manta, giant mantas were uplisted on the IUCN red list to endangered. Um, so in the time that I just talked to you about doing those first assessments when I was young in my early twenties yeah. and them being data deficient, so in half of my life, so in my career, in the last twenty years. Um, uh, these mantas went from being data deficient to near threatened to vulnerable to now endangered. And that's happened in 20 years. And so for me, learning about how well they see or what they eat and things like that, while whilst important and interesting and in, in, in you know bigger picture kind of like, you know, it's it's good, but the 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 thing that really haunts me and challenges me now is I don't want to see mantas hit critically endangered. I certainly don't want to have them become extinct. And so for the rest of my life anyway, I'm going to focus on what I can do to change that. And that involves usually things like creating marine protected areas, um, protecting their most critical habitats. So it, it changes from just studying something about the biology of that animal to using what you do know about that animal to kind of affect change. And so right now in Mozambique, we're working with the government to develop a huge environmental protection area, like an MPA, a network of, of MPAs along the coastline that are adjoining, that will protect most of the critical habitats for the manta rays off this coastline. And this population that I've been working on for the last 20 years here has experienced about 95 more percent decline in, um, in, in sighting records over the last 20 years. So it's one of the most kind of critically endangered populations of mantis in the world. 
as such. And so for the rest of my life, I will try and figure out how to protect this coastline and bring that population back. Wow, that's, I knew they were, had been updated to endangered, but I didn't realize that so much was going into it to create these NPAs, which is fantastic. And so like the physiological studies right now for you are kind of taking a backseat and you're going to be focusing on like more of the, there's a word I'm looking for, more of the management, like protection and creating those areas and looking to see what you can do to kind of help. Yeah, when I say a backseat, because it's easy to kind of give a student now and oversee like the work being done on like other oh, yeah. aspects. But I think with with my experience and with the context of my career, the best the best thing that I can the best thing that I can do is to use to, to use my testimony and to use what I have seen in my career to lobby for big level protections. And that's why you know, I was like one of the ones to champion um, their listing on, on, on the Con Conservation for Migratory Species Act. One of the, you know, people that kind of championed their listing on, on CITES, the, the Convention for the International Trade in Endangered Species. The, you know, kind of the one to kind of champion their national protection in many places. I kind of, I feel like it's more important now to use my career with them to kind of lobby for big scale protection you know as much as i love the field work and i still do it all of the time you know it's easier for me to oversee like that type of research but then focus yeah. my career on the bigger stuff absolutely it's much easier to kind of give that to someone else and while you use your voice for these mantas because like it just makes total sense i love that so the goal is to kind of have, like you said, like these environmental protected areas, so like a string of MPAs. Is that just around Mozambique or are you also looking kind of globally for that protection? We've done some of those in other places as well. Um, and, you know, and, and some of them we've been more or less involved in, um, you know, mantas are now protected throughout the entire Indonesian archipelago. Um, definitely our research played a role in that. Um, they've expanded um, some of the protected areas in Ecuador off the back of some of the research that we've done. I mean, obviously, we, but this is personal for me in Mozambique. Yeah. So it isn't like our research has been used, you know, to do this in other countries. Like I am literally on the podium every day screaming and yelling here in Mozambique and using our data sets, our, our huge 20-year data sets to kind of like uh, develop better management and, and, and the protocols needed to kind of protect this population. So it's, it's per like, I'm not leaving until that's done. Okay. I love that they have someone like you that is fighting for them like this. These mantos are really lucky. And I think about it that way, you know, sometimes people say like, you know, is it healthy to be such an obsessive speciologist? You know, I get that sometimes from people in interviews and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, fair play. I understand. And I'm not because I actually have projects, as I've explained before, on lots of different animals. Mm. But I like to think of it that I, I, am, I am putting my life on the line, like literally. I mean, I've just dedicated my entire life to megafauna, specifically mantis, I suppose. But I hope there's someone like me out there killing it for the penguins and killing it for yeah. the, you know, chameleons and killing yeah. it for the whatever. Because we can't do it all, but we can we can do some things really, really well. And that's the, that's the, the cool thing about conservation is there's different people around the world all focused on the planet trying to do, use their voices and use their minds to kind of like solve problems in their specific areas. And if we all work together, slowly we have a shot, I reckon. I love that outlook that you, it's going to take all of us, but it's going to take all of us kind of like focusing on one thing at a time to fix everything. And like each person kind of taking a responsibility for one thing and working on that. And I love that. What would you say the, like, where I've talked about threats to mantas a lot, what would be the number one threats happening in Mozambique specifically? Like, what is it that's putting these guys on the endangered list? Is it like anthropogenic stuff? Is it their life expectancy or like the time, the recruitment age and whatnot? Or what is it? I mean, like in most things, unfortunately, I mean, maybe not all things, but like in most things, it's usually some sort of anthropogenic issue. And in the case of a lot of sharks and rays, it's fishing pressure. And in the case of mantas, it's, it's a mix between directed fishing, which there's plenty of, because just like shark fin um, that goes to, to Asia, there's a, 
there's a market for the gill the gill plates and mantas they use and with some medicinal tonic over there that doesn't work but anyway um so there's some directed fishing but a lot of the cases of mantas is indirect kind of like um indiscriminate uh fishing method like call it a gill net or a long line or okay sands or where they're being incidentally captured like not on purpose anyway so it's fishing but it can be a different types of fishing that's all kind of contributing and like many sharks but even worse in mantas they're they're they have really really conservative um life history life histories mantas they're like the least fecund of almost any of the sharks and rays they have you know they they don't mature till they're late you know late in in their life they they really have one offspring they have one baby at a time and wow. sometimes they can go two to three sometimes six years between pregnancy and the babies that are born i mean they're quite defenseless and they're small and a lot of those ones are eaten by sharks so in the course of their life like the individuals that survive from the few pregnancies that they have there's not very many so so if you understand what i mean yeah it's very difficult for this particular species or these species of mantis and mobulus to populate um so very very conservative life histories and as such um, and because they have small populations to start out with, I mean, sometimes there's, you know, populations of mantas are in the 100 to 200, and sometimes at their most, you know, in the maybe thousands or in a few exceptions, maybe tens of thousands. So when you're killing them on a large scale, it does not take long. Um, it's not no. like, you know, how people talk about hundreds of millions of sharks dying. If it that was the case for mantas they'd be extinct next year like okay you know they're being killed aggressively and the populations are small they can't rebound because of their previous to their own biology so it's just it's a it's a real bad situation for them unfortunately but the good news is that it is anthropogenic pressure and if we can remove that anthropogenic pressure boom they could recover pretty easily as well take take a while but they could recover okay so it is something that we can definitely kind of like halt or even like slow down a little bit like we're that's what you're working on right now is getting that back up and getting us to back off them kind of thing that would be the the goal of my life that would be the achievement of my career if i could if i could have documented the largest decline on the largest and quickest kind of decline on record in mantas and then make some alterations maybe not even ones that are that dramatic and then we could watch, um, you know, that population rebuild itself um, yeah. and really demonstrate to people how, how that can be done as like a case study, you know, really prove that concept. That, that's kind of what I want to spend the rest of my life doing so that we can inspire other people, not just because there's too much doom and gloom. Yes, I mean, there's yeah. problems all over the place, but how do we solve those problems? That's, yeah. that's the real important. Absolutely. Well, you're going to have these problems. You're going to run into animals whose populations are declining and like, it's sad, it's terrible, it's heartbreaking. What are we going to do about it? How can we help? How can we kind of like take responsibility? Yeah. I love that. And you've mentioned earlier that you're utilizing a lot of um, citizen science, utilizing a lot of citizen science. How are you using that? And like, how can people get involved if people who are listening to this are now inspired to be like, that's it, mantas are my life cause. How can they help you out with this? Yeah, I mean, citizen science is the key. And, um, you know, anything that's crowdsourcing these days or anything that's trying to harness that, that global mass um, is obviously gonna have a bigger impact. I mean, let's say my research team, you know, in Mozambique, you know, just in Mozambique, maybe, I don't know, let's call it 10 people think of how much work we're going to have to do to try and document this whole population. But let's say all of the scuba divers that visit Mozambique, and we're talking about tens of thousands of years, yeah. let's talk about them. If they all contributed the photos on their vacation um, to our databases, how much faster we could do our job. And that's the premise of it. So I realized early on, as I mentioned, that mantis have these individual spot patterns. I realized that we could probably create an algorithm for them that could recognize mantis automatically just like the FBI fingerprint database. So I kind of teamed up with the Cambridge mathematician uh, professor guy to, to develop that algorithm. So we developed it, then we created a, an online website called Manta Matcher um, in collaboration with Wild Me, which is an organization in the US. And they don't have just websites 
the global databases for just like mantas. They have one for whale sharks. They have one for zebras. They have one for zebra sharks. They have one for you know, penguins. They have ones for whales, the splash book, um, if you're not familiar with it. Um, and so now if you're on vacation, you can take all your photos of mantas and upload them to Mantamatcher. And the cool thing about it is, is unlike when I was young, if I contributed data to a scientist, it was like you sent it in and then maybe you felt good about yourself. No, but Mantamatcher is cool because it's open source. So you contribute your data, then the algorithm matches it. Then you get to see, you know, very quickly whether or not your manta ray is something new that's never been seen before. Or if it's not, if it's a manta that's been seen before and it's a recite, you get to see the whole history of that manta. Cool. Where it's been seen before. It gives you a map of all the places that it's been seen and where it was most recently. Then, because you're tied to the history of that manta, the next time that manta is seen, you get an update email about your, about your manta so that you know where it's been now. And people can really connect with science. So instead of just offering your science up to this black hole of science, you can really get involved. And all of the wild books are like that. And we're trying to show people that you don't have to have a PhD to like get involved in research. Anyone can get involved in research. And everyone should get involved in research because it connects us all to like the problem and the solution. That is so cool. It's kind of like one of those like adopt a mantas, but like a legit, like sometimes I feel like those like adopt a thing kind of things. So you're like, oh, here, this is a random manta that might not exist. This might not be its name, but this one, like you're tracking it. That is so cool. Oh, I love that. That is, I'm, I'm blown away by that and how, I will, I will be for sure. Um, I'm blown away by how cool that is and how like inclusive it is for citizen science because citizen science, we've talked about it a lot on this podcast and it's so cool and so important, but sometimes it feels like you collect the data, you're out there doing the work and you send it in, then maybe you get to read a paper if it's a public paper. Sometimes you get those papers that are locked and locked down no one can touch them except for people who pay the hundreds of dollars for the journal but it's kind of like oh i i was part of that but i have no proof and this is so cool that you're actually like involved just by like going on vacation and taking a picture of a manta yeah 100 and again just like i told you about mmf creating something about that i wanted like i wanted to i wanted to be hired by an organization like this but it didn't exist so i created it <laughs> When I was young, um, and I told you I was into this stuff when I was 12 and 15, that's what I wanted. I wanted to yeah. contribute to citizen science, but I thought like when I, was, when I was 12 or when I was 15 and I wanted to contribute, what would I have wanted? You know, how would I have wanted to connect with the scientists? And then we were like, we can build that. So we built something which is modeled after what I would have wanted when I was 15, you know? And, you know, just because I wanted it when I was 15, you know, I think anyone that's not necessarily a scientist but wants to live kind of vicariously through other scientists and get involved, they all want the same thing, whether you're 15 or 50. You want to be connected with it. You want to know that what you're, what you're doing is meaningful and real and that there's a tangible benefit. You're not just contributing things that no one actually uses. You want to feel involved in it. You want to get updates. You want to, yeah. So you just create what you want. That is amazing. And I love that. I love this. I'm so excited about it. And like, can't wait for everyone listening to hear and see this to know that they can contribute, like, and be connected with this research and help these mantas. It's so exciting. So if people wanted to follow along with MFF or you on social media, is there anywhere so they can find you and keep up with you and keep up with the research that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I love about the organization I mean, not that we're ageist or anything like that, but um, we tend to, I mean, I think I'm, Simon and I are certainly, I think the oldest people involved in our organization. So, I mean, we have a lot of like youthful people. So we're very social media oriented and, you know, very visual. Cause most of us are like, you know, my husband's a professional cinematographer, Simon who's the other co-founder is a professional photographer like myself. So we're very visual. So, I think that you know you'll find that our web presence is 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 big and visual, and you know we connect with people. You know we're, we'll answer, you know comments. We'll answer emails. We're you know always uh, posting things on Twitter, on Instagram, on on Facebook, everything. 
Um, you can follow us as an organization, so um, Marine Megafauna, um, depending on where you are in the world, you might even follow, like we have uh, regional pages, like if you're from America, you can follow MMF in America. If you're from Ooh. Africa, you can follow MMF in Africa. You, you, know, you get where I'm going. But yeah. if you want to follow me personally as well, um, that kind of Queen of Mantis thing, never, I could never get away with it. So when I was, I don't know, in my mid-20s, BBC came out and did a, a documentary on the work that I did with Mantis, and they called it the Mantis Queen, which was incredibly embarrassing at the time. I was like, you're going to ruin me as a scientist. <laughs> but actually what I found is that people remembered the name, you know, people were like, oh, you're like a manta ray superhero. And, and it became, instead of embarrassing, it became endearing for me. And it became like something that people identified me with. So then screw it. All my handles are Queen of Mantis now too. So, so if you want to follow me, you can follow me at Queen of Mantis. And, um, and yeah, I hope you, I hope people do follow along because we have a lot to say and we have a lot to share and hopefully we have a lot to teach people. I highly recommend following along because there is the coolest pictures you will ever see and you learn so much so quickly like I'll just be like scrolling through Instagram and I'll like read one of your captions I'm like whoa didn't know that so cool love that and then just keep going and it's not every day that you're like on social media learning things like social media has become kind of an escape but it's kind of nice to be like oh cool that's what's going on easy and then just sweat it makes learning so easy and so accessible. Well, I'm glad you enjoy it. I'm glad you like the story. I'm glad you, I'm like, you're going to follow along. So that's cool. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It was absolutely awesome to have you. And I learned so much and I can't wait to share this episode. Good. I'm glad. You're very, very welcome.